Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We are very, very pleased to have with us today Brian J. Jones. Mr. Jones uh, is a congressional speechwriter and best-selling author of books including Jim Henson, The Biography, Washington Irving, George Lucas, A Life. And today we will be talking about an American icon, a subject that has been a little bit in the news and the headlines, and perhaps certainly no better person to enlighten us on the whole story behind the one and only Dr. Seuss. And um, Brian Jones is the author of the acclaimed Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Jessel and the Making of an American Imagination. Uh, I purchased it quite easily on Amazon and <laughs> it hasn't been canceled. <laughs> feel free and, and it has not been canceled. Um, and um, uh, feel free to just go on Amazon and purchase this, this really entertaining and wonderful book for all of us who grew up um, with Dr. Seuss. It really is, it's an eye opener and really uh, appreciate um, your being here uh, today. Um, we'll get right to it. Um, just a little bit about your background and how you became interested in Dr. Seuss. So Dr. Seuss was an interesting experience for me because unlike George Lucas or Jim Henson, for example, um, I didn't really grow up with Dr. Seuss. Um, Dr. Seuss, I didn't, I, when I say that, I, I did, but my relationship with him was very different than most people. Most people, when I tell them I'm writing about Seuss, say, I learned how to read from Dr. Seuss. Uh, I did not. Uh, Dr. Seuss, to me, was the dentist office book. Um, I don't even remember actually having Dr. Seuss books, but my friend down the street did, and I used to read them all down there. So they were almost like this, you know, this hidden treasure that I had. So I had a little bit different relationship uh, with Seuss than the other subjects. It was the result of um, of a meeting I'd had with my editor and my agent, uh, just talking about other really potential interesting subjects that are, you know, those sort of iconic um, game changers. And Dr. Seuss is certainly that. People that take their chosen, you know, media, their chosen genre they're working in and do something very unexpected with it, usually because they don't know the rules, which again, also holds true for Dr. Seuss. Okay, um, just, just let, let, let's set the scene a little bit, um, you know, very briefly, um, the time period in which he is born, um, some of the formative stages, which you outline in, in great detail um, in, in the book, and maybe perhaps just highlight some of the significant influences on his life that led him through this um, career, which really spanned so many decades and so many different endeavors. Right. So Dr. Seuss is born in 1904 and dies in 1992, I believe. So he lived almost the entirety of the 20th century. Um, he is not one of these guys who early on you're, you're, you know, as I would say, this isn't Steven Spielberg filming his trains crashing into each other. You wouldn't necessarily know what he wanted to do with his life, you know, looking at him as a child. Um, he wasn't a child prodigy. He wasn't a, a great artist as a child. You see his work in high school. It's nothing outstanding. It looks uh, like the work I did as a high school newspaper artist, frankly. Um, and he really thinks that he's going to be an English teacher. And he's not a great student in high school, ends up at Dartmouth. He's not a fantastic student at Dartmouth and ends up going to Oxford, mainly because he had lied and told his father he'd won a scholarship and he hadn't. 
Um, and then his father, who had already told the newspaper reporter across the street, then had to had to send him to Oxford uh, to, to to cover it up. <laughs> so so Seuss ends up at at and Ted guys. Well, I'm going to go ahead and call him Seuss, but Seuss ends up at Oxford uh, to become a college professor, and ends up um, you know spending most of his notebooks drawing rather than studying and the woman he would eventually marry who was a fellow student was looking through his notebook and said you know that's what you should be doing you should be drawing but what Seuss does when he first starts out is he's drawing for humor magazines like the 1920 equivalent of mad magazine and that's where he begins to sort of cut his teeth and do his early work Lux into, and we can talk about this a bit more in depth if you would like, but sort of lux into a fantastic advertising job selling uh, flip bug spray for Standard Oil and a very successful career. He was sort of the Don Draper of his era um, for about 17 years. He's being paid very well by Standard Oil through uh, his advertising company. And that was really his main career for a long time. He didn't get into children's books initially because he felt he had something to say to children. That certainly happens later. But he gets into children's books because there was money on the table. Um, it was something he was not precluded from doing through his sort of limited contract he had with Standard Oil. So he could write and draw children's books and wrote and drew his first children's book that was published in 1937, which was And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street. But as incredible as it sounds to us nowadays, Dr. Seuss's early books on up into even the early 1940s, he had about seven of them before World War II started, didn't really generate enough money for him to make a living by it. So he was still doing advertising work that entire time. Ends up enlisting in the Army at age 39 to serve in World War II. And this is sort of one of the first big formative eras for him. He meets two really important people in his story. His commanding officer in the Army Signal Corps, so he's, he's hired in the Army Signal Corps to do propaganda and training films, uh, so he's stationed in California, but his commanding officer is Frank Capra, the movie director, who understands how valuable um, Seuss is as a storyteller, and, but teaches him uh, something very key, which is he began going through Seuss's scripts for the training films and the propaganda films and said, I'm going to underline your, your plot in blue pencil in here. And if I hand this back to you and there's no blue pencil, you have a real problem. Uh, and so Capra teaches him about tight storytelling and about how making words matter, making words count, but pairs him up with another really formative colleague at the time, a young animator named Chuck Jones, who was a civilian, not in the army, but a civilian working at Warner Brothers, who pairs him uh, with Chuck Jones to do the private snafu training films. And they're hilarious. They belong to the American public. You can see them at the National Archives. They're free to watch or download, even if you'd like. Um, but Chuck Jones is one who teaches him how to storyboard a story and how to put the high points of the story down on paper and then pin them to the wall. And Seuss absolutely loved this. It taught him about pacing. Um, it permitted him to pin a book up on the wall and stare at it for a year, sometimes years, and move pages around and determine where the best points in the story were. So that's a very formative experience in his life is, is meeting Chuck Jones and Frank Capra. Um, I'll continue with the arc here a little bit. So he comes out of World War II, still doesn't really know what he wants to do for a living. Did he, um, just second, did, did, did he serve in Europe at all? Did he see Europe? He, he did. He, 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 so he, he did. But he wasn't sent over there to fight. He had a film uh, that he was working on that he had to have the approval of the higher-ups on. 
So we had to go in person because at this point, I think Capra was gone. So we had to go in person over to the European theater to have this okayed personally by several generals in person and actually, you know, got lost behind enemy lines at one point at the Battle of the Bulge. Didn't, didn't, he said he missed it entirely, but he was stuck behind the lines. He didn't even know what had happened. He said there was no sign that said this is the Battle of the Bulge. Um, so it was, in, it was sort of inadvertent contact, uh, but he did see action. Um, he always said that he was, his father was an expert marksman. He said the best thing he could have done with his pistol was throw it at someone. Um, but, uh, but, you know, did, did experience war, um, did see sort of the aftermath of, you know, just the, just the sheer plunder and, and damage uh, that had happened to war was really sort of made an impact on him, seeing just burnt out buildings. And had actually seen German propaganda at work, um, even prior to World War II. He he was from a German-American family, spoke right. German, um, but had been in Germany at one point right before the war, 1936, and saw German propaganda and was alarmed by the impact that German propaganda was having on children, which also sort of formed his views later when he decided to become a children's book writer. So, so after the war, um, he sort of dabbles in film for a little while, Still trying to find his way, he wanted to be a, a fixer, a, you know, a script fixer, a script doctor, and then he, he actually writes a script that ends up getting filmed called The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Um, but it's a terrible experience. He decides to go back to advertising, but he's still writing enough children's books um, that aren't earning him enough money for a living. The, the game changer for him finally comes in 1957 with The Cat in the Hat, which was written as a challenge. This is, this is, uh, essentially bet, you know, write, write a, write a book that a first grader can't put down was the, was the challenge, but he had to only stick with the words on the word list. And it took him a long time, uh, because if there's no possesses, for example, on that word list, you can't use them. If there's no plurals, you can't use them. That ends up being the cat in the hat. And that is the, that is the game changer for his life. You, you can um, see how worn, incredibly worn, in 1950. You can see how worn. And, you know, and, and, and it's just Random House has got to just make tons of money off that book because um, everybody wears that book out and has to buy it multiple times <laughs> over, the, over the life of the book. Yeah. Um, you know, two big books come out that year, not just Cat in the Hat, but The Grinch comes out that same year. So those are his two big books that come out in 1957. From that point forward is when he really sort of becomes the Dr. Seuss we, we think of, the, the real advocate for children's literature and children's reading, and does that for the next, you know, 30, 30 almost 40 years. Tell us a little bit about the personality. Uh, I got the sense reading the book that it really depends on what kind of a person you are. If, if you were at a dinner party with Theodore Jessel, with Dr. Seuss, you know, you could either <laughs> love it and have the greatest time in the world, or you could be totally annoyed. Um, so tell us a little bit. Yeah, he was, he was, he was something of a practical, yeah, he, he was something of a practical joker. Um, you know, he was at a dinner party once uh, in the thirties, I believe, maybe even earlier than that, where it was an oyster dinner and he purchased just a cheap, rip off fake uh, fake pearl and hit it in an oyster to see what kind of hubbub this would cause at the party and who would try to claim ownership of this, whether the host who threw the party would try to claim ownership or the person who found it would. Uh, you know, that was his idea of a great practical joke. Um, it, he was, you know, he was a great 
party goer. Um, he was the son of German brewers. And so, you know, happy hour was always on his menu. So their parties were, were very well lubricated that they would throw. He and his, both his first wife and his second wife were fantastic hosts. He, he usually left the real entertaining to his wife and he would sort of preside at the table, but then always had the, you know, perfect remark or the perfect story to tell. Um, he always said that children were so disappointed when they met him in person and he didn't have on baggy pants and a clown hat. Um, they expected him to be Dr. Seuss all the time. Uh, you know, Theodore Geisel's very different from Dr. Seuss. Um, but the, but the biggest difference I think is, is Theodore Geisel does all the work and Dr. Seuss gets all the credit on this. Um, Seuss was very serious about his work for children and very serious about writing those books. But, um, you would put him in, you know, he went to a lot of events in California where he stood in long lines to shake hands with people um, that he put up with and would kind of disappear at these parties. And they once found him in the shoe section of a store. They were having a large event at a, at a store um, and he disappeared and they found him later in the women's shoe section, uh, changing all the prices around on the shoes. So, uh, so yeah, it could be annoying. Uh, another time he, you know, hit himself at a party and they were, he and uh, the woman, he ended up, his second wife, they were braiding the, you know, the, the rope on the, on the drapes. So, <laughs> so, you know, he was a fun guest until he got bored and then he was going to cause a little bit of havoc. Yeah. So you have this, this combination of a soaring imagination. I mean, just an incredible imagination. That's part of the title of, of your book. And then on the other hand, you have this, this um, attribute of extremely meticulous. I mean, totally meticulous about, as you said, every word, every nuance, colors, hues, shades. How, do you, how, how does that work together? It's like, it, it, obviously it's not contradictory, it's one person, but it seems like it's like two different aspects of, of the person. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's one of those things where the way you could describe it is the ideas come faster than you can get them on the page almost sometimes. And getting them on the page to him was very important. Um, now, sometimes the ideas didn't come that fast and that frustrated him too. The one thing that's, well, not the one thing, there's lots of things that are impressive about One of the very impressive things about Seuss is just his incredible work ethic. Um, this is a guy who would go and sit down at the desk at, you know, nine o'clock in the morning every single day of his life and would sit at that desk and would try to think of the story and the next story. And once he had the story, he would try to plot it out and would sit there and work all day. And even if nothing came, even if he couldn't produce anything that day, if it was a bust, he still sat at that desk. It's, you know, it's the, the dreaded, you know, writer disease called butt in chair, uh, which is really painful sometimes. And he did it every single day um, and, and was happiest probably in that office, but it could be very frustrating for him. And, you know, there were stories of him, how he would throw himself down on the couch in his office and literally thrash around and look like he was having a tantrum, just like he was, he was stuck and was trying to almost literally knock the idea out of his head and get the plot point out. So, so he was very serious about the work. And as you mentioned, very, you know, a stickler for color. And he would, he would have the colored pencils on his desk and he would break them off and send them to Random House and say, this is the green that I want. Find me the green that matches this exactly. Don't send me a green that doesn't match this. Very picky about those colors. Um, you know, very picky about the way things reproduced, even if, if there was one book that he wanted reprinted because the blacks on the cover weren't thick enough for him. He didn't think that they had reproduced well. Um, the other thing that's so 
you know, so crazy is um, talking about Frank Capra and, or, or uh, Chuck Jones teaching him how to storyboard and pinning those pages up on his wall. He might have, um, you know, poetry verse that scanned beautifully. You know, th that's one of the great things about Dr. Seuss. And that's what makes his, his verse so wonderful is you're not working to figure out how you say something rhythmically to make the word work. He was, he's very good about making it so you're not grabbing for, for you know, the emphasis on a word. So he could have that verse down perfectly, but if he had it pinned up on the wall and noticed as he stood back, the third line is much longer than the others. He would, he would take down off the wall and, and, and start again and try to write that line differently so it didn't even look bad on the wall. So very, very meticulous, very picky about it, partly because he thought kids deserved great books. He thought they deserved books they wanted to read. And that took hard work because as he always said, they were the hardest audience to write for. They will see you coming a mile away if you're trying to pull some fancy tricks. Um, so, so I think the fact that he took that so seriously is one of the reasons that his books are so successful and, and are still read today. So, so I think the, you know, getting back to your original point, I think that meticulousness is the vehicle for that imagination. At times it was the breaks on that imagination just because he was so so picky about the way it looked and sounded and felt and smelled and tasted, you know, every little bit counted. Going back um, a little bit to the thirties and the forties, when you look at um, what we would call, I guess, political cartoons, very, very sharp, very strong. Um, what was that all about? Like, you know, you, you had mentioned, you know, he, he was alarmed. Um, what did he see? in, you know, in tyranny and fascism and German Nazism that really bothered him so much that his, his cartoons were very, very powerful. Yeah, so, so he actually got into editorial cartooning at first because he was just trying to get something out of his system. He was very upset with uh, Virginio Gaeta, who was like the head of propaganda for Mussolini. And really and was tired of reading his name in the newspaper and watching him lie to the press and, you know, and just mislead and complain and gripe. And he got really upset with Gaeta and so drew a cartoon um, with with about Virginia Gaeta and sent that into it ended up being published in PM newspaper, which was pretty much the only progressive newspaper in New York City at that time. It was mostly those Hearst conservative newspapers um, and thought he'd gotten that out of his system. But um, but the, the editor of PM newspaper really wanted Seuss on the, on the payroll, uh, really wanted him being the editorial cartoonist. And, and the tipping point for Seuss was actually Charles Lindbergh. Um, he had Lindbergh's number early. Uh, he did not like America first. He did not like the open flagrant anti-Semitism of America first and Charles Lindbergh and trying to play people off against the other uh, that, you know, that really, that, I don't, it frightened him, but more than anything, it really made him mad. And he actually said that later, I got into this because of Lindbergh and I got mad. Um, so his earliest cartoons are his first, uh, editorial cartoons during this, it's about 1941 is when he started. It's before we were in the war, but in the early, early 1941 is when he starts really going after Lindbergh and the Republicans. And he, and he, um, draws the Republicans as ostriches with their heads in the sand. Um, because of American isolationism. Uh, Seuss wasn't necessarily somebody who wanted to go to war. Um, and most Americans didn't at that time, but he said, we really 
should be preparing though for the inevitable here. You know, I, I don't want to go to war either, but um, we could have a real problem here if we're not ready. So he was pushing strongly for American preparation at the very least. And then once we were in, he was all in at that point as well. And would draw very, you know, annoyed and angry cartoons about people who just sat on the sidelines and, and carped. Um, you know, he was, very, he was very patriotic in that regard. Um, really thought we needed to be in the war, really needed to be doing good. Went after Hitler very hard um, once, once we were in the war. But, but it, it was really Charles Lindbergh that really started him off. And his cartoons hit Lindbergh hard. Um, and there's, there's a very famous one after Lindbergh had made his really horrific speech at Madison Square Garden about, you know, the Jews. And, um, and he drew a cartoon that had an American eagle in the stocks uh, with a sign hanging off of his beak that says, I am part Jewish. And then at the bottom, it said, you know, arrested by the sheriff, including Charles Lindbergh, and it had a couple of other U.S. senators who were America Firsters, but a really powerful really powerful cartoon. And again, you know, 1941, I mean, this was pretty hard hitting. And this is something a lot of people weren't saying, at least not publicly. This is, you know, this is who's going on the record. It, it, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. I mean, this was a guy who was, you know, had done about seven kids books at that point, but signing his name on the bottom line and having those cartoons in the newspaper. Okay. Um, be, before we get to, you know, what's in the news today and, and all, all of that stuff. Um, well, what's your favorite Dr. Seuss book and why? <laughs> well, one of my favorites is actually on the list right now. Okay. Um, but but I, 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 I really think um, if I ran the zoo, it's problematic aspects aside is some of his um, best verse. Um, it's, it's really some of his bounciest verse. It's also the first place you will see the word nerd anywhere in American English that word is, is originates in if I ran the zoo um, uh, it, it's a it's a really it, it's a really wonderful book um, verbally or it, you know the it, linguistically um, of, of his post 1957 books um, again my relationship with those books was very different I didn't learn to read with them I was reading what he called the big books and that was books like the cat or not the cat and had you know the Grinch and okay. uh, the Lorax and the books that didn't didn't have to adhere to that word list. I love the Lorax. I love the Butter Battle book. Uh, that book came out when I was in high school, I think. Um, and even reading that book as a teenager it scared the hell out of me. I mean, it's it's it is a you know it is a Cold War mutually assured destruction allegory, and it works. Uh, still works to this day. It's a really frightening book, but done very well. And it, it's Seuss looking you as the reader straight in the eye uh, and saying, you know, we, we have a problem here that we need to think about. And it and ends on this sort of horrifying cliffhanger. I mean, you can see why parents uh, were saying that that book scared their, their children to death. A really effective book. I, I love that book because I love the craft in that book. 